0: We've been uh, looking for the past several weeks and will be for uh, much of this year on the story of the earliest church uh, is told in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts roughly traces the first 30 years of the church's life and history from Jesus's resurrection and ascension. And uh, what we've been looking at in this, uh, in this book is the way that the, the story of Acts, the story of the first church can continue to shape our mission as a church and our dynamics as a church. The section uh, that we've been in over this last stretch, Acts roughly four to six, uh, begins to tell the story of the church uh, meeting opposition as they carry out their ministry. On the one hand, they're growing and things are going great, but they're starting to run into some challenges along the way. We've seen them run into external challenges, haven't we, as they start to, to meet some persecution uh, from the uh, political and religious leaders of Israel. So they've seen external threats. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of them dealing with some internal threats. Uh, and remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, whose hypocrisy uh, and self-righteousness began to threaten to spread in the church and how God dealt with that. And now uh, we're going we're to look at another challenge that faced the earliest church and that faces every church, which is the challenge of leadership. Right as the church grows, uh, its need of leaders grows. Its need of uh, men and women to come and to serve alongside uh, its appointed leaders grows. That for the church to be all it's going to be, all that it's called to be, it's going to require God to provide leadership for the ongoing mission of the church. And so we're gonna um, we're gonna keep moving through Acts, but we're actually uh, gonna pause a little bit at this section. Because at the end of two weeks, we're going to, praying that God raises up new leaders and more leaders for our church, uh, we're going to open up the process of nominations uh, for the roles of deacon and elder. And so what we want to do over these next couple of weeks is look at the biblical foundation for those roles, right, what a deacon or deaconess is and what an elder is and what they do so that we can make a biblically informed decision for how this fits into uh, the work and life and mission of the church, because we believe that if the church is gonna be all that it's called to be, it's gonna require all of us, right? Both formal uh, elders with, you know, leaders with titles, and every single member of the body of Christ. For us to do the whole ministry of Jesus to the whole people of God, it requires all of us. It requires all hands on deck. And so, if you would, today we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter six, Beginning in verse 1, going through verse 7. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. You can be seated. What we're going to see today are the, the kind of the one point that I want you to pay attention to and learn from this sermon, if nothing else, is that the church's call to proclaim the whole gospel to the whole person requires the whole church. Right? For the, for, for, for the church to proclaim the whole gospel, not just a narrow gospel, to whole people in body, soul, and mind requires the whole church. Now, if we reduce the ministry of the church down simply to things like preaching and teaching and discipleship, then maybe you could get by with only pastors, preachers, and priests, right? Maybe you could get by with only uh, people who are gifted as teachers if the the church's sole mission was to pass on information, if our sole mission was uh, to educate, to preach, and to teach. But what we see Uh, in this chapter of Acts and beyond in the whole chapter of Acts, is that that's not all of the church's mission. Now, to be sure, that's a huge part of the church's mission, right? Our our proclamation of the gospel in ways formal, kind of here at the pulpit, and informal around tables and and, and everywhere that God sends us in our neighborhoods. Right? The message of announcing and teaching and preaching is an important part of the church's mission. But the church's mission is as broad as the mission of Jesus himself who came, right, to to set all things right. Remember the way that Luke defines his work. Remember we said that uh, the the author of the Gospel of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. It's kind of uh, two parts of one book. And he describes uh, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, he says, remember how I told you, Theophilus, that's the reader, "Uh, in, in my first work in the gospel, all that Jesus began to do and to teach with the implication being that the story of the church is the ongoing doing and teaching of Jesus, right? That Jesus continues to serve and love and do, and he continues to speak. He continues to teach. And so if we are going to model the life and love of Jesus, it's going to require the whole people of God. No one person is gifted enough or able enough to fully reflect the fullness of the ministry of Jesus. And what we're going to see in Acts, what we notice in Acts, is that this isn't a watering down of the gospel, right? It's not that, yeah, you need a little bit of preaching and you need a little bit of care for the poor, social service, these kind of things. No, it's that you need both turned all the way up, right? It's a both and, not an either or ministry, Right, that for us to, to truly proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God isn't to, it's going to take a lot of preaching. I mean, the book of Acts, we said, is, uh, is about a third sermons, right? So Luke is not in any way trying to turn down the importance of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what he is keen to make sure is happening is that the gospel is being both proclaimed and enacted. In the love and mercy and care of the poor and the disadvantaged. So, first, we're called to a holistic mission. This is for perfectly in keeping with what we see the Old Testament church doing, right? The people of God under the Old Testament were supposed to be marked by a special care for a trio of people that both the law and the prophets talk about over and over again the stranger, the widow, and the orphan right? Historically, these in the ancient world were the three classes of people that were most without defense and most without provision in the ancient world. The stranger was the one who was an immigrant, right? The one who wasn't uh, a part of the nation in which they found themselves living. Uh, They were an alien. The widow in a world that was dominated in which property was passed down the male lines in most families, Right, The widow, the, one who, the woman who found herself without a husband, without anyone looking out for her in that world, was worthy of special care in the people of Israel. And of course, the orphan, the child who found themselves through sickness or warfare or some other means, uh, without a parent looking out for them, that these, this group of people were meant to be given special care in Israel. It's one of the very things that marked Israel out as different than its neighbors, Right, we don't recognize the extent to which our our contemporary modern understanding of charity, right? The idea that we ought to look out for the vulnerable. How much we're indebted for that idea to the teachings of the Old and New Testament. Right, right now that seems commonplace. It seems like Christian or non Christian, everybody can believe we ought to care for the, the least and the hurting. But in the ancient world that Israel grew up in, it was a dog eat dog world. It was survival of the fittest and the most powerful. And to heck with what happens to the others. And so for God to plant within that world the tiny little people of Israel and to say, no, no, no. here, you look out for the disadvantaged and the vulnerable and the oppressed, for the widow, the stranger, and the orphan. A couple of years ago, we looked and we preached through the book of Ruth. Ruth is a story of that covenant community in action, right? She was a widow. She was a stranger. She was an alien, an immigrant. And to see her taken care of and brought in by God's people and in by God is a symbol of what it was supposed to be like in Israel. We see this continue on in the ministry of Jesus, right, who spent so much of his time among the poor, spent so much of his time caring and and restoring sight to the blind, walking to the lame, power to the powerless, life to the dead. Right? Jesus himself embodied this mission. He embodied it when he stood up in the synagogue at Nazareth and opened Isaiah to the point where it said, Behold, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus' ministry was a both-and ministry, a preaching-and-doing ministry. The church at its very best throughout history has always been known for this kind of care for the marginalized and the hurting and the vulnerable. Right? We're told in the first centuries of the church's life, this is one of the things that made the church stand out in the pagan world. That it cared not only for its own poor and vulnerable, but for their neighbors as well. A couple of great quotations from early church history. This is from Ambrose. Uh, who was a 4th century church leader in uh, Milan, in contemporary Italy. Ambrose wrote, There is your brother naked and crying, and you stand confused over the choice of an attractive floor covering. Right, here he's saying, Your your brother and sister are crying out for food and, and clothing, and you're trying to figure out which kind of rug or hardwood floor would look best in your house. Or how about this from Basil the Great? bishop of modern day turkey again from the 4th century the bread that you do not use is the bread of the hungry the garment hanging in your wardrobe is the garment of the person who is naked the shoes that you do not wear are the shoes of the one who is barefoot the money you keep locked away is the money of the poor All right what he's saying is that when you're you know when i open my closet and go hmm is it a sneaker day or a boot day what what do i what do i what kind of kicks do i feel like wearing today God is saying, he's saying, look, no, no. If you have extra and you have brothers or sisters who have none, those shoes belong to them. That Jesus has claim on your wealth, he has claim on your property for the care of the poor. To fast forward over a thousand years, John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, said this, He said, except that we endeavor to relieve the necessities of our brethren and to offer them all assistance, there will not be on us but one part of true conversion. Here, what Calvin's saying is he's saying if you're claiming to be converted, right, if you're claiming, in other words, to be a Christian at all, it bears the mark of both love of God and love of neighbor. And that love of neighbor gets worked out most particularly in the love of the poor, in the love of the vulnerable. And so the church is called to care for whole people and to care for whole cities. Two of those men quoted earlier, Basil the Great, and he lived in Caesarea, uh, modern-day Turkey in the 4th century. Uh, Historians credit him with developing the first hospital. Uh, He helped to usher that city through a time of famine and plague by building a place where people could come to receive care and food in the midst of it. Calvin, in spite of all of his great theological works and theological reforms, also entirely reformed the city of Geneva to allow for the deacons of the church to take on care for the poor, for the refugees from France who were streaming into Geneva at the time, for the widows and for the orphans. Because he knew what Christians have always known, that our theology, what we believe, gets lived out in practical ways, through our care for the poor. And so in Acts 6, a crisis arises that brings this to the forefront, right? We're told, verse one, now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. This is one of those places where Luke just puts a little pin to say, hey, remember, the church at this time is experiencing exponential growth, right? Hundreds and thousands of new believers are coming into the church. At this time, and remember, the only formal leaders the church had at this moment were the 12 apostles. So you've got a growing church, and you've got it being led by these 12 uniquely and wonderfully called, commissioned, and sent men, the disciples, the the 12 apostles. But they came because a complaint by the Hellenists, and we'll talk about who those people are, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's the scene. The people, a group of the people, come and complain to their leadership about something that's going on uh, among them. And now this has happened uh, in the church since the days of Moses, right? The word that's used here for complaining, I love this, it's the same word that's that translates the Hebrew uh, in Exodus every time that it says the people grumbled against Moses. Uh, so this is just what People do, right? You get people in groups, uh, people grumble to their leaders, and then their leaders, remember what Moses did, he went and grumbled to God, right? So the people pass the complaint up to Moses, Moses passes the complaint up to God. And now here, the people come complaining to the apostles that certain people are being neglected in the distribution of food and, and, uh, and income that's going on within the people, um, and the apostles, to their credit, don't just pass the buck. They just don't go and complain against these whiny people up to God. They, they work on fixing the problem. And what was the problem? The problem was there were these gr- this group of people referred to here as the Hellenists who were complaining that their widows were being neglected in the distribution. Now, remember in the chapter before, we're, we give this, uh, we're given this beautiful description that whenever anyone had need in the church, that those who had would go and sell and the proceeds would be distributed to those who had need. It's a beautiful picture, right? It's a beautiful goal. It's a beautiful aspiration. But like so many beautiful goals, the devil's in the details, right? So the, the people with, with something go and sell that and then it gets distributed to those who don't have. But somebody's got to do all that work. Somebody's got to do the distribution uh, to the people who have need. And at that moment, there's the, uh, there's the opportunity either through oversight, through carelessness, through a lack of leadership or gifts, or perhaps through malice or prejudice for it to break down. And so what's happened is that it's broken down among two groups of people. Remember, everybody in the early church to this point uh, comes from a Jewish background. So this isn't a, di- a divide between Jew and Gentile. But it's a group of Greek-speaking and culturally Greek Jews from Hebrew-speaking and culturally Hebrew or Aramaic Hebrews. So remember, at this time, through the exile and other means, there was what we uh, sometimes referred to as the Jewish diaspora, Jews who no longer lived within the national bounds of Israel but were spread all over the Greek and Roman world, all over the known world. And so that group here, some of them have become become followers of Jesus. Remember at Pentecost, there were people from all over the empire, from all over the world. So some of these Greek, culturally Greek, Israelites now converted to Christianity were in with this church with these culturally Hebrew converts to Christianity. And what's happened is they're saying the Greek speakers have started to not get their fair share in the distribution. And so they come and they bring this problem to the apostles, that these people are being neglected and so that everything that was being intended to be shared was not being shared. And I think the reason the apostles take this so incredibly seriously is because they know that this, this, this failure strikes at the very heart of the church itself, right? If the, if the people of God were meant to be known as people who cared above all for the immigrant, for the orphan, and for the widow, here are widows who are largely immigrants, right? They they converted elsewhere and then came, who are being overlooked. And so the the apostles knew, look, the credibility of our preaching, the credibility of our, our faith is on the line in how we care for these women. And so we need to figure out a solution to make sure that they are being dealt with fairly. And in doing so, they run into the second thing I want us to look at, which is the limits of their leadership. Right, all leaders, all human leaders are limited. Even, in, I mean, these are the apostles, right? These are the ones who knew Jesus in the flesh, who are witnesses to the resurrection, who were sent to proclaim the message far and wide. And yet even they recognize that they've bumped into the limits of their leadership. Right, they say, well, what, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the mission of preaching and prayer, of the word and prayer, to tend to tables. And I believe that there's not a hint of disdain in that sentence for the work of tending to tables. Right? It's not that, we, well, look, we're apostles. We have really important work to do. We can't be bothered with these people. No, it's about calling. Right? It's, a, it's saying, look, there's a diversity of needs and there's a diversity of callings. And we, we have a particular calling. And it would be wrong for us to get distracted from the work that only we can do the work of taking the message of Jesus to every city and town and to preach and to teach the faith. But they've run into their ability to lead a mission and a ministry that is holistic as the vision of Jesus for his people. And so to break out of that problem, it's going to require more leaders. You know, one of the sobering truths about being a pastor that hits you uh, at some point, and especially a church planter, is when you, recognize that there, it's when you recognize that the gifts and limits of your own life get reflected in the church that you lead and pastor, right? That, yes, it reflects something of your strengths, but it's also going to reflect your weaknesses. Yes, it reflects something of your graces, but it also reflects something of your sin, right? That, that le- any church built, if it's built on one person's gifts, one person's abilities... It's going to have all of the blind spots and weaknesses of that one person. And so it requires a multiplication of leaders to bring multiple gifts, multiple graces into the life of the church. My friend Esau is a a brilliant biblical scholar. He's a PhD from St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, PhD was a dissertation in Galatians, brilliant, brilliant man. He's been a doctor uh, for about five or six years since he finished his PhD. His wife is also a doctor, uh, but she is a medical doctor. She's an internist. And uh, he says that his kids called him Dr. Macaulay for about four days after he got his PhD. And then they quickly uh, corrected his, his view of his importance by saying, no, no, but mom's the kind of doctor who actually helps you. Right? No, no. Like if, if somebody says I need a doctor, they're not saying, can someone help me understand the Greek text of Galatians four? They're saying, can someone fix my leg, help me breathe, fix my heart attack? Right? And so he said, no, no, I went back to being dad pretty quick. And she's still, she's Dr. Macaulay in our house. Right? And so at some point, you know, uh, the church for it to be all it can be. Yes. There is a place and a need for preachers and teachers of the word. Right? I know that, you know, I've, I've pursued education in this. I try to do this as faithfully and as well as I can. Willie does the same. But at some point, we need people who can also actually help people. <laughs> right? We need, I, I remember I was meeting one of our members uh, for lunch one day, and he texted me and said, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to be running late. I've got a flat tire. And I said, I should come help him fix this tire. Um, but there are better people who could do it. Right? At some point, a preacher standing there reading the instruction manual for how to change your tire. You know, you might, we got a couple of auto guys here. Maybe that would be better. Better served him in that moment. But the church needs all of the gifts of its people, uh, its intellectual gifts and its practical gifts, its special graces and common graces woven together in order to fulfill the mission that God's given the church. And so uh, what the apostles do is they say, choose seven from among this group who are gonna be set apart for doing this special work. Their character is gonna be highly important. They're to be men of character and the Holy Spirit. Every one of the names given of these men is a Greek name. So it seems like they're also choosing members of the Hellenist group, members of the group that was being neglected to join them in the leadership, perhaps in a way of saying, look, we want the diversity of our our family to be reflected in the diversity of the leaders who are doing the work of distributing these goods among them. Scholars think that this group, this group of seven, is, uh, we go back and forth, sometimes they'll be called the first deacons. Uh, Most most likely, I think they're a group of, you might call them proto-deacons, Uh, They're not quite, uh, the the office of deacon, the picture of deacon isn't fully fleshed out here as much as it will be later on in the New Testament. But they're certainly doing the kind of work that, that as the New Testament church grows, we see the deacons doing, taking care of the special, physical, practical needs of the people. And I think there's a lot to be gained here for the life of our church Right for the life of any contemporary church to recognize that pastors, uh, like the apostles here, right? I'm not an apostle. I don't claim that title. Um, pastors probably shouldn't claim that title. Um, but there's a rough analogy between the calling and work of pastors and what the, what the apostles are doing here, right? Our work, the pastor's calling, is around the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer, right? The ministry of the word, both publicly doing this kind of thing, uh, in groups, and classes, in person, one-on-one, over the table, doing shepherding. Prayer, both leading in public worship as well as cultivating a personal life of prayer. Praying with and for our members. And what happens, unfortunately, is when a church uh, gets into the model where the pastor does all the work, two bad things happen. One, the pastor isn't doing the work that he's called to do. Right, He's got too much else on his plate to really devote himself to a life of scripture and prayer and teaching and shepherding. And he's doing all this other work that he's not very good at. Right, I will never uh, cease to thank God for the day that Cynthia Eads, I think it's watching, uh, watching out there, uh, said to me, hey, Dave, would it help if I took over the bookkeeping instead of, you know, you trying to piece this together? And I said, oh, thank you, Jesus. Yes, we need, we need multiple people doing the stuff that I'm not good at. Pastors can't do it all. We shouldn't do it all. Even the apostles couldn't do it all. I remember a story that Eugene Peterson, who passed away a couple of years ago, great pastoral mentor, uh, he told the story of himself near burnout, uh, overworked and about to hang it up, going and talking to his deacons and elders one day. And he was explaining to them how he thought he still wanted to be a pastor how he wanted to cultivate a life of prayer and study and discipleship and spiritual formation and teaching and counseling, but he just couldn't do it and continue to lead the church. And they asked him, what keeps you from doing all that now? And he said, and I'm gonna slightly edit it for our little ears, I'm too busy running the dang church. And they said, well, what if you let us run the dang church and you were a pastor, right? And pastors do lead. We lead through telling the story, through laying out the story of the gospel, through, through shaping a people shaped by the values of the kingdom. But it takes the gifts of all of us to get it done. And so this week, uh, we're going to conclude by looking more particularly at this office of deacon. Next week, we're going to look at the, at the office of elder. And then after that, we're going to take nominations for uh for people to serve in those roles. And we'll give more instructions uh about how that's gonna work. But the way it works in our in our church government is that the congregation nominates people to serve in those roles. And then uh, the, the session, the, the existing elders, uh work through those nominations and choose some to come in and to go into a period of training, after which, uh if they're ready, they'll be presented for the members to vote on. Right, So we're going to start that process next week. But we ought, to, we ought to ask, what does a deacon do? What is a deacon, if that's what we are going to begin looking at uh, next week? And we see that, the beginnings of it, here uh, with these leaders, these seven, that the diaconate was meant to be devoted to uh, the care for the practical daily needs of mercy both inside, primarily inside the church, but also overflowing outside the church. They extend the diaconal ministry of Christ, right? Deacon uh, is from the Greek word for servant. And there's probably, uh, there's few words more commonly used in both the Old Testament and in the New to describe the work of Jesus than the work of a servant, right? That the ministry of Jesus is a diaconal work, it's a deacon work. Think of Jesus uh, serving the tangible felt needs of the people around him. Think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and then saying, now you do the same. Right? That the ministry of Jesus is deacon work. And so what do they do? They, they work to extend this practical ministry of care to the poor, to any member of the church who has need, those often overlooked, whose needs might be easy to ignore. They're also charged with looking after the practical administrative functioning of the church. So uh, in our polity, they oversee things like the budget, finances, physical property, if the church owns a building, which we don't, um, but other physical uh, property of the church. They do all they can to see that the church keeps the, the focus, the needs of the least of these, foremost in our mind. They don't do all of the deacon work that needs doing in the church, the way that our book of church order puts it, is that the deacons are called to, quote, develop the gifts of liberality in the church. What does that mean? That means it's not, you can't say to the deacons, look, there's somebody in need over there, you go take care of it, right? That's your problem. The deacons are called to cultivate the spirit of liberality, the gifts of compassion and mercy and care among all of the members of the church so that we all can take on that work together of loving those in need. In doing this, the deacons place a priority on the care for the physical and material needs of our members. Uh, Remember what uh, we saw just two weeks ago where uh, Luke says that there was no needy person among them. Right? That doesn't mean that there were no needy people in Jerusalem, right? But it means that among the believers, they took to it and made sure that no one went without that everyone had their basic needs met. And so the diaconate puts an immediate focus on caring for the needs of our members and our attenders. And then from there, our neighbors and those in the community. So that alongside evangelism, you know, alongside the announcing of the gospel, we can demonstrate the gospel to our neighbors who are in need. I love this. One of my... uh, Theological uh, Heroes is a guy who's passed away now, but he was a seminary professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, a man named Harvey Kahn. He had been a missionary in Korea uh, and then had returned back to Philadelphia uh, to become a seminary professor. And while in Philadelphia, he was teaching uh, seminarians at Westminster Seminary and working uh, in street ministry in inner city Philadelphia. And what began to gnaw at Dr. Kahn was the incredible gap that stood between the practical street ministry that he was doing in the inner city and the theological formation work that he was doing in the seminary, right? And what he became a huge proponent of was to say, look, we reformed people, right? Reformed and Presbyterian believers, which is what our church is. That that tradition has so many uh, rich gifts. But what he noticed was that in our love of doctrinal and theological discussion and study, we were prone to overlooking the right-in-front-of-us practical needs of the city, right? That we were more prone to studying a theology and teaching a theology than we were into living out and embodying a theology among the poor. And so one of the—I love this quote. This is from one of his, his works. This is written in the early 1970s. Should the church get involved in questions of social justice... Was it not a question of equity over food distribution that required the apostles to appoint the seven? So he's pointing this story right here. He's saying, look, social inequality within the church between these two groups of people is what drove the the installation of the first deacons. Should not the office of the deacon be the place where the world sees the real compassion for the sinned against, and for the racially brutalized? Isn't love simply the command of God to be just in our actions? On the street corners of the world's inner cities, the evangelical has too long, been, too often, been standing and singing, take the world and give me Jesus. And now we have what we ask for. We have Jesus, and the world has been taken away from us. What he's saying is we've uh, been so uh, preoccupied with one piece of our theological identity, which is true, which is that this world is not our home, right? That we are to be heavenly minded, that we are to have our gaze set on Jesus. But that does not relieve us of our responsibility to our neighbors. For this world that we are created in, called to and sent to, now, right, now, surely not everything. You know, I, I know that there was probably some thoughts and some feelings when I read the first sentence of that. Should the church get involved in questions of social justice? Right now, certainly the church, the church shouldn't rush headlong into everything that has the word social justice attached to it. But we can't deny the, the notion that the idea of a just society is so woven into the prophets, so woven into the vision Uh, the Old Testament and New Testament vision for the world and for the church that we neglected out of fear, out of indifference, or whatever else. To be a both-and church, a church that embraces and loves and takes seriously the ministry of word, and that, like our Savior, sacrificially takes on ourselves the sacrificial posture of love, That's what the deacons are called to keep before our minds. To keep before us the least and the hurting and the poor and the in need. So that we can join with Jesus in his ongoing ministry to the hurting. I love this little line here at the end as we conclude. And the word of God continued to increase. Right, so the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, evangelism, is continuing to go forward and increase as they're taking better care of the vulnerable and the poor among them. So as the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, in a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That little line just feels like almost a throwaway. Right? Yet yeah, many, many people were converted and some of them were priests. But why is Luke drawing our attention to that detail? Remember, we said that when you're reading narrative in the Bible, every detail matters because they don't give many. So the detail that there were many priests who, I be- who believed, I believe is put there by Luke for a reason because in the life of Israel, it was the priest's job to look after this kind of work, right? The priests were called to the work of distributing alms to the poor. That's one of the reasons, remember, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan and the Levite and the priest pass by on the other side. And the scandal of that detail of the story is that the priests were the ones who were supposed to do it, right? The priests were the ones who were supposed to care for the hurting and the vulnerable and the poor and the victimized. And here they were not doing it. And so I believe the priests in Jerusalem knew, hey, in in, in our system, We're the ones who are made to distribute the alms to the poor. We know how hard this is. And we know how sometimes we don't do a great job of it. Certainly other people don't join us in doing it. And yet when they looked at this group of people, this early Christian community, what they saw was a kingdom of priests, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. They saw a group of people who all together were taking on the priestly ministry, who didn't leave the care of the orphan, the widow, and the stranger to a few, but who gladly took it on all together, who said, we together are not going to let there be any poor among us. And the priests were so moved by this community of priests that they became believers themselves. They said, we know this is what we're supposed to be doing, but in there, they're actually doing it, all of them together with joy. And brothers and sisters, I believe that that in some ways, uh, there may not be a more powerful witness in our contemporary world. Our neighbors are looking at us. Our neighbors are looking at the poor among them and going, we know we're supposed to care. We know that we're supposed to be doing nice things for the poor, giving to them, working for them. But we know we're not doing it. We know that we don't have the answers. We know that we don't have the, the type of community that could enfold them and help them and love them. But in there, they do. In the church, they're doing it. They're living as a community, loving the poor sacrificially so there are no poor among them. In the image of Jesus, led by a gifted, called, and qualified diaconate who's seeking to model that for our whole church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's amazing that you, uh, who were the eternal Son of God, seated at his right hand, took the posture of a servant, uh, that you became a deacon, a servant of all, that you came not to be served, but to serve. Lord, we confess uh, that we often disdain service. Lord, we often uh, are so much more preoccupied with being served than with serving. Lord, help us to lay down our lives for those in need. Lord, help us both in our church and beyond the walls of our church to be a church of deacons, a church uh, where there are none who are without the basic necessities of this life, to be a church uh, where Uh, The the ministry of Jesus is extended to our members and to our neighbors, where none escape our attention and our care. Lord, it's so easy in a church uh, to assume that everybody just has everything they need, uh, to assume that all of our basic needs are met. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us open eyes to see need among us where it exists, to give us creativity in figuring out how to meet those needs that as Kyle prayed for transparency, uh, Lord, that you'd help us to be a church where we're free and easy to be transparent about our needs, where when we need something, it's normal to ask, uh, to say that we need. And so, Lord, we we bring this to you. We ask, uh, Lord, that we would be a church where the gospel is proclaimed not only in our words, but lived in our lives uh, as we serve our neighbors. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.